electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. I'm John Fort in for Kelly Evans. And here's what's ahead on The Exchange. On the heels of the second 75 basis point rate hike in a row last week, and just three days ahead of the July jobs report, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly telling me this morning there's still a long way to go in the fight against inflation. What she thinks needs to happen to stabilize prices. Plus, with inflation at a 40-year high, Consumers are looking for ways to save. We're going to talk to the CEO of Mitzfits Market, which offers surplus produce and groceries at a discount about the trends he's seeing. And chips, coffee, and credit. We're going to get the action, the story, and the trade on AMD, Starbucks, and PayPal out of their reports this afternoon. But first, let's get to Dom Chu on today's market action. It looked like, John, it was going to be a sell-off earlier today, but it's not. We're at session highs right now. Uh, To John's point about an interesting story developing here, even with geopolitical tensions given Taiwan and China, the ongoing conflict and war between Russia and Ukraine, everything happening right now is leading to at least a little bit of moderation in the market. The Dow Industrials is down 56 points or about two-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500, again, session highs up 21 points. We're near there right now. We were down as low as 39 at the lows of the session, so we're up one half of 1%, 17 points, 41.36 the last trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite, 12,483, up 113 points, the real outperformance are up about 1%. Interest rates, very curiously, if you look at the spread, the difference in rates between three-month Treasury bills and 10-year Treasury notes, that is one of those preferred gauges of the yield curve that some traders and investors look at as that possible recession indicator. At one point today, in the past 24 hours, it actually inverted ever so slightly only to go higher again. We're now up by just about nearly 20 basis points, that difference there. So it's been pretty much a straight line higher ever since that touch of inversion. Interest rates, by the way, near session highs right now for the 10-year benchmark Treasury note yield. We were at one point down around 2.5657%. We're back all the way up about to the 2.7 area now. So keep an eye on those interest rates. And then one other place to watch is the stock of the day. A massive move higher in shares of Uber right now, up about 17%. It's been strong all day long. It reports a big loss, a wide loss due in large part to many of its investments getting regraded to the downside, revalued to the downside. However, revenue is coming in much better than expected. Also, some of their ridership and usership metrics showing some signs of life as well. And it became cash flow positive as a business for the first time ever. All of that leading to some positivity for a stock over the last year. John, that's lost a third of its value still, though. A big move higher. We'll see if that optimism carries for some of these kind of post-pandemic world type trades. Uber is one of them. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, Dom, thank you. Meanwhile, this morning's JOLTS report, that's the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, showing that a slowdown is beginning in the jobs market, something the Fed was looking for as it continues to hike rates in an effort to cool rising prices. Today, I got a chance to speak with San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly about the Fed's next moves in its inflation battle, the recession debate, and last week's 75 basis point move. I started by asking if the Fed's job was nearly done. Nowhere near almost done. 
we have made good start and I feel really pleased with where we've gotten to by this point. But let's just remember the last numbers on inflation, 9.1%. Those are far too high. But most importantly, just go to any grocery store. You know, I went to do a lot of shopping for different things in over the weekend and people are still struggling with the high prices they're paying and the rising prices. You know, the number of people who can't afford this week what they paid for with ease six months ago just means our work is far from done. So we are still resolute and completely united on achieving uh, price stability, which doesn't mean 9.1% inflation. It means something closer to 2% inflation. Well, let's start with gas prices because it's a really good example of how that is going to provide some relief for consumers. And, and I'm already seeing it when you fill up your tank, it's a little cheaper than it was just a month ago. So that's good news. We need that relief for consumers. And the housing market slowing is very good early signs. And I'm seeing signs of more of broader slowing. You know, you see it. People are starting to think that the economy is downshifting. But we can't stop there because part of our work is raising the interest rate. The other part of our work is telling people where we expect the interest rate to go in the future. And financial markets, as you know, price that in and you're seeing that, but we have to make good on those, those commitments to continue to raise the interest rate or else the whole thing unravels. So part of it is people expecting us to do something going forward and they're reacting to that expectation. And it really would be premature to unwind all of that and say the job is done. Steve Leisman is here with some reaction. Steve, NASDAQ's been rallying ever since that hike. I don't know if uh, investors feel the same way Daily does. Yeah, there's a bit of a gap between the uh, market expectations and, and, and I think the Fed rhetoric or the Fed guidance here. Uh, and, and what you see if you look at the 10-year or some of the uh, longer-term dated uh, treasuries is that they, they're starting to price in either a recession and or Fed rate cuts down the road. And I think uh, what you heard from Delhi there is part of a process of Fed officials trying to lean against that. Uh, we had Evans this morning. He said 50 basis points in September, possibly 75. Didn't see much reason to go further. Um, but what he'd like to do is to get the rate up to the three and a quarter, three and a half percent range. And as uh, Daly would go on to tell you, and as Evan sort of talked about as well, maybe stay there for a while. But this idea, what, what did uh, John, what did Daly say? She's perplexed by the market uh, pricing in, uh, which, by the way, I can show you guys. If you bring up that Fed rate outlook, you can see how the futures market is priced. Everybody's all together and, and, and kumbaya on <laughs> up until about January, where the Fed reaches that three, 330 range. But then you see the market trying to price in or starting to price in those rate cuts next year. And both Evans and Daly, uh, to, some, to, just to, to each their extent, um, are leaning against that pricing right now. Yeah, she said uh, she, she doesn't know what data they're looking at, but not only they're is that not at, right? what she would expect, but that it, it would be kind of jerking, jerking the economy around the negative way to, to be, you know, hiking <clears throat> and then cutting and then, you know. Well, to be fair, I asked Williams about this. Uh, John Williams, the New York Fed president, a few weeks ago, and he said there are times, and Evans even talked about this as well, where the Fed gets up to a rate, kind of looks around, and then maybe tweaks it on the backside. But, but, but this is more than a tweak that's built into the markets. And I think, John, we have to uh, uh, talk about the full argument here of the Fed. In part, they don't see those rate cuts because they're not out there predicting a recession. And I think the market has embraced this recession idea. They've taken that two quarters of a negative growth football and decided to run with it. 
Um, and so this idea that there's a recession now, it gets to the critical question, which I don't think anybody can answer right now, but investors have to think about, which is what happens to Fed policy in a recession? I asked Evans about this and he said, well, look, if it's a recession where demand is coming down, we would expect uh, inflation to come down. But the other side of that was not necessarily so clear. What if you have a recession, negative growth and still high inflation? What does Fed policy do? And uh, Evans was a bit on the fence that he said, well, a recession is unhealthy, high inflation is unhealthy. So unclear right there. But that's one of the questions we have to start to think about. Uh, indeed. And we are thinking about it uh, with some help. Steve Leisman, thank you. So is Mary Daly right? Is the Fed's job far from over or is the slowdown that some say we're seeing going to force the Fed to pause sooner than they intend? Let's bring in Cameron Dawson. She's CIO at New Edge Wealth. Cameron, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I thought Daly's comments about the need to raise rates past neutral, get to restrictive territory and stay there was really important because that's what the bond market is bracing in is a rather sharp cut to interest rates next year. And she's saying we don't want to do that because it can whipsaw the market around, whipsaw the economy around and really repeat the errors in the 1970s of that stop go policy where they raise rates and cut them and raise them and cut them, which really caused more than a decade of inflation kind of, of remaining elevated. So it seems to be that they want to get interest rates up and high and keep them there in order to make sure that they have fully slayed that inflation beast. But right now, the bond market doesn't believe them. But it's important to remember that both the bond market and the Fed have been wildly wrong at predicting <laughs> the path of interest rates. Mm -hmm. Back at the end of last year, the bond market thought that we'd only get to 0.8% at the end of 2022. We're already at 2.5%. So the data could definitely push us in a different direction. Yeah, who's going to be wildly wrong next, I guess, is part of the question. Yeah. Uh, maybe nobody wildly. But uh, at the same time, I asked President Daly, OK, what would it take to, to have a cut? And she sort of said, well, conditions would have to be pretty bad, some sort of shock. That sounds like a hard landing. And so should stocks be going up in anticipation of a hard landing? Yeah, you know, we've been in this camp where the data has to get worse before it gets better to justify that Fed pivot, that in order to see the Fed have enough bad signs that they say, OK, ignore higher inflation above our 2% target, which will take time to get to, that we'd have to see really weak jobs data. We'd have to see really weak manufacturing data. Those things have started to slow, but they're nowhere near bad enough to say that the Fed can really prioritize that data to do a cut. So we don't think that we've fully priced in that hard landing into the market where we are today, whether it's in EPS, which still remain elevated for 22 and 23. And at about 4,100 in the S&P 500, we're at 18 times. The last time that we were at 18 times pre-pandemic was late 2019, mm. and the Fed was cutting rates, not raising rates. Well, let's translate some of this haziness into stocks. Mm since we're still in earnings season. Cameron, you like the machinery names, but listen to what Caterpillar CEO Jim Umpleby told CNBC Squawk on the Street about the supply chain after the company reported mixed results. I'm not going to predict when this is going to get better. There's been lots of predictions over the last couple of years uh, post-pandemic as to when the supply chain conditions would ease. In our business, we have not yet seen uh, a market improvement in the supply chain. Now, how do you feel about machinery after hearing that? 
Yeah, well, that supply chain issues is the reason why they missed on revenues and margins for CAT in the quarter. But it's not because of demand being weaker. And I think that was an important takeaway Hmm. is that CAT was asked, are you seeing any signs of weakness in demand? And they said outside of China, no, they're not. Um, That if you look at things like backlog and orders, they were still really robust in the quarter. And the fact that they aren't seeing any order cancellations. So typically in a major down cycle, you start to see companies cancel their orders for large equipment, cut back on CapEx. But Kat says that they're really not seeing that yet outside of Russia. So that would say that the machinery markets are still pretty tight and that because commodity prices, which have come down from their highs, are still elevated, this would support continued investment. They also pointed to infrastructure being an important support for their construction business. So overall, if there is weakness in the data, which we're starting to see, it's not showing up yet in CAT's numbers. Now, this reminds me of what we heard this morning from OnSemi CEO who said, in their core business, right, which is autos and industrial, they're seeing a lot of strength. But outside of that, they're not. It makes me wonder what thing leaks through into the other, the the relative strength or the relative weakness, especially if we wonder if the consumer is going to hold up into Q4. Yeah, that's such an important point because we have been seeing kind of when we think of the economy overall, these little pockets of weakness, but they haven't spread yet. So think of things like housing, which has been much weaker. We're starting to see a lot less activity in housing uh, construction. You saw that in the construction data yesterday, which declined over 1%, but it has not yet actually spread and kind of metastasized to the rest of the economy. And so I think that really is the question as we go into the next couple of months. Will we see these pockets of weakness, weaker demand for interest rate sensitive parts of the economy actually spread into broader consumer spending? For now, credit card growth is still really strong. We heard that from the banks this quarter. We heard some of the consumer goods companies talk about strong growth. Obviously, we're seeing weakness in, in, in goods demand, but services are hanging in. So it really is a question of contagion. That, that is true. And the savings rate is coming down uh, as interest rates are coming up and going to make those credit card bills maybe a bit harder to pay. Cameron Dawson, thank you. Thank you. Meantime, Speaker, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi becoming the highest ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan since 1997. This despite fierce opposition and threats from the Chinese government, our Eunice Yoon is standing by in Beijing with the fallout for U.S.-China relations. Eunice. Thanks, John. Well, Speaker Pelosi was greeted with by cheering crowds and the island's tallest skyscraper lit up with the message, Speaker Pelosi, welcome to Taiwan. A Taiwan news outlets report that while in Taipei, a Pelosi will visit Taiwan's parliament, lunch with President Tsai Ing-wen, and discuss human rights with local activists, including those who've come from, Ta- uh, from Hong Kong. Uh, we're also very quickly getting a sense of what Beijing's response will continue to be. Uh, today, just minutes after her arrival, China, which claims Taiwan as its own, and also sees Pelosi's visit as a challenge to Chinese sovereignty, called her trip a major political provocation meant to tighten official exchanges between the U.S. and Taiwan. The Chinese military dispatched fighter jets and also announced that it's expanding military drills in the waters and the airspace surrounding Taiwan till Sunday, 
Now, the impact on American business is still unclear. However, a Taiwan businesses are feeling the fallout. In fact, China said that it's suspending imports of over 2,000 Taiwan food suppliers. John? Eunice, in the past, there's been this sort of ability for the executive branch and the legislative branch here in the U.S. to argue, well, we can't control what the other does. It would be different, arguably, if someone from the executive branch uh, had made this visit. Is that likely to temper China's response here or no? So far, it is not. Uh, that is the argument that the White House has been making, that um, members of Congress have in the past uh, visited Taiwan. This isn't anything new. Um, even on the, the speaker level, when Newt Gingrich 25 years ago uh, visited Taiwan. However, the Chinese government said that they still see this visit as a real affront to national sovereignty in a way to try to uh, encourage uh, what China believes are separatist forces to uh, become much more emboldened and that they could see a Taiwan moving in the direction of independence. Of course, that's something that Beijing definitely does not want to see. But uh, so when you look at this response, of course, it's still unfolding. Uh, but what's interesting is the level of swiftness and the coordination with all of these government responses from various agencies. And, um, and overall, just uh, the, the general feeling that uh, this is um, short of war, that this response is, is quite serious. All right, Eunice Yoon, serious indeed. Uh, thank you for that update. Coming up, it's retailers versus recession fears. While the industry is still opening stores, despite all the warning signs of an economic downturn, the details are ahead. Plus, if you're using the chips in your device to Venmo someone for your latte, this is the earnings exchange for you. We have the action, the story, and the trade for AMD, PayPal, and Starbucks ahead of their results. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Despite growing recession fears and ongoing concerns about inflation, the news isn't all bad for retailers. In a new CNBC.com piece, the biggest shopping mall owners say retailers are moving ahead with plans to open new stores. Here with me now is Lauren Thomas, who wrote that article. She covers retail for CNBC.com. Lauren, this seems in a way part and parcel of that big e-commerce boost during the pandemic. 
coming back in line with the previous trend. Perhaps the dip in visits to malls coming back up to the previous trend? Absolutely. No, that is certainly one factor at play here. You know, a lot of these digitally native brands as well are really contributing to the store growth, you know, be it Allbirds or Warby Parker, you know, and, and even just, you know, a traditional retailer like a Macy's or a Gap that really benefited online during the earlier days of the pandemic. Now we're certainly seeing that shift back to stores. You know, brick and mortar retail has reigned supreme in recent months as has kind of been the narrative across the industry. Um, essentially what Simon Property Group, the biggest mall owner in the country, told us yesterday, though, was, you know, though you might expect because cracks are starting to form in the retail industry, that you're seeing similar cracks in the commercial real estate world. That's really not the case. You know, Simon said its occupancy levels were up year over year. It reported the highest uh, retail sales per square foot on record in the second quarter. So it's really seeing companies uh, hold true to those plans. You know, if they said uh, a few months back, you know, they intended to sign a lease to open a new location at one of these malls, uh, they're holding holding firm with those plans. Uh, David Simon said on the call, you know, haven't really seen seen any retailers back out of those deals, hmm. at least thus far. So are, are the rents still just as expensive as they were before? Is that in essence what he's saying? Even though you're seeing residential real estate take a pause at growth wise, is commercial not doing that? And are rents still rising or are they staying steady? It's a great question. We have seen, so looking at some CBRE data, we have seen in recent quarters, rents have started to pick back up. They really fell off, particularly in cities like New York, for example, where people fled, you know, everyone was moving to the suburbs and stores became vacant. In 2020, there was this huge wash of store closures and bankruptcies across the retail and, and restaurant industry. So as a result, you know, we really saw commercial rents plummet again in certain markets. Those have started to come back up in, in places like San Francisco as well as in New York. But one of the dynamics at play here is the fact that we haven't seen a lot of new construction of retail space. You know, mm. Construction has gotten really, really expensive. And so as a result, you know, there is just less and less space available as businesses do look to move back into some of these storefronts. So it's created a bit of a competitive environment at least in some of the best properties. Again, Simon is known for, you know, some of the best in class malls in the U.S. Yeah. Um, you know, it has, you know, tenants like an Apple, for example, or a Lululemon or a Peloton. You know, so some of that space has become more competitive and, and rents are rising again. Yeah, whether it's food, gas or commercial real estate, supply and demand pretty much undefeated. Lauren Thomas, thank you. Still ahead, Pinterest shares popping after the company reported, well, not exactly better than expected numbers overall, but better ex than expected user numbers. The fundamentals still choppy. That isn't stopping Elliott Management from becoming its new number one shareholder. We're going to look at why they're so bullish. And how high can your grocery bill go? We're going to get an inside look from the founder of a billion-dollar startup who says he doesn't see any sign of a slowdown in prices. The exchange is back after this. And now, CNBC Trend Tracker.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets mixed right now. The Dow's still in the red, but well off the lows. The Nasdaq, the biggest gainer right now. S&P just about treading water. Here are some of the movers this hour. Molson Coors among the worst performers today following second quarter earnings. While the numbers are in line, the CEO telling CNBC that the beer industry saw softening sales during the second quarter. JetBlue, meanwhile, falling after posting a wider-than-expected loss for the quarter. The airline citing high fuel prices and increased labor costs as part of the reason for the losses. It did say it's still poised to return to profitability in the back half of the year. Mosaic and CF Industries are moving higher today. Both companies say fertilizer demand is quite strong, along with tight supply. Both reported earnings today with Mosaic missing on the top and bottom line and CF Industries beating on EPS but missing on revenue. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Ty. John, thank you very much. In the next few minutes, Attorney General Merrick Garland will announce that the Justice Department is calling its first affirmative litigation to, to protect access to reproductive health care following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And in the first referendum on abortion since uh, the fe federal emergency, since that decision, Kansas residents are asked, are asked today whether or not to approve an amendment to the state constitution that would give its Republican-controlled legislature the authority res to restrict or ban the procedure. Right now, the state's constitution protects abortion rights, the vote expected to be close. And author Stephen King testifying in Washington today in support of the government's antitrust challenge to propose merger between Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster. King told the court the suggestion the two co companies would still bid against each other for books is as ridiculous as the idea that a husband and wife would compete to buy the same house. Quite an apt metaphor, but that's his business, John. Back to you. <laughs> yes, the visual. Ty, thanks. Up next, the street looking for any guidance on how the CHIPS Act might impact AMD. Starbucks facing uh, foreign exchange headwinds and slowing spending. And shares of PayPal have fallen and extended trading in three of its last four earnings reports. We're going to get the action, the story, and the trade on those names in earnings exchange next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uber and Pinterest rallying double digits on the back of their reports. Who could be next? We've got the action, the story, and the trade for three names reporting after the bell today. Let's start with AMD. Shares down 31% this year, but climbing 17% in the past week after the passing of the CHIPS Act. Investors are watching to see if demand remains strong in the enterprise segment, where it's seen tremendous revenue growth over the past few years. 
Christina Partsonevelis has the story on AMD, and Jeff Mills has the trade. He's the Bryn Mawr Trust CIO and a CNBC contributor. Christina, you first. Well, let's start with the fact that AMD did uh, update their guidance at an analyst day in mid-June, so maybe that bar has been uh, lowered and a little bit more accurate. But there's three points I want to focus on, the first one being the consumer client business, PC sales. We saw weakness not only with Intel, but several other chip makers, too, so we'll be looking out for numbers there. The second point, like you mentioned, enterprise. So data centers across the board will, uh, with Intel, you saw it drop 16% year over year. They said that it had to do with um, equipment manufacturers higher inventory levels. They also mentioned lower pricing. And then the third point that Intel mentioned was competition. And who's Intel's biggest competitor? AMD. So we'll be looking to see if any market share was stolen from there. And then the third point is just GP units, graphic pricing, um, processing units that are used in gaming. Yes, prices have gone down. So from a gamer's perspective, that's good news. Maybe not good news for margins, but on the enterprise level, you, you buy it as a, a mixed package. You buy the software that goes around with it too. So it may have a little bit less of an impact. So Wall Street is relatively bullish on this company, there's no doubt. Okay, Christina, uh, makes sense. Jeff, how high are the expectations for AMD, particularly when it comes to the guide as we're heading closer to Q4? Yeah, well, listen, I mean, the stock has moved 30%. So, you know, regardless of what you think, the, the market has priced in some level of optimism heading into this earnings report. And I think it's important to remember that this stock is still in a downtrend. So you have a stock that's rallied a lot into a downtrend. So guidance is going to be very key. And I think any weakness there, the stock could get sold. I think on a long-term basis, though, remember this. AMD is now 10 PE turns lower than a stock like NVIDIA. And of course, you can argue that there's different growth profiles there. But I think from a long-term perspective, this is an interesting place to enter a stock like AMD. More than anything, kind of the solid margin, free cash flow margin, profitability profile of a stock like AMD, that's what you want in this market. We're moving from kind of a rates and inflation scare that compress these multiples to more of an earnings and growth scare uh, from, an, uh, from an economic standpoint, which is why I think you want those characteristics in a stock. Maybe you have near-term volatility, but I, I think this is a reasonable entry point. All right. It's a reasonable entry point. Next up, thank you, Starbucks. The stock down nearly 30% this year as interim CEO Howard Schultz tries once more to steer the company, this time through a wave of unionizations, staffing issues, and higher costs. Kate Rogers has the story on Starbucks. Kate. Hey, John. Well, analysts are looking for EPS of 75 cents on revenues of $8.1 billion for Q3. Same store sales expected to increase 4.4% overall and 9% here in the U.S. That's a big jump. Both here and abroad, inflation will be in focus. Last quarter, the company suspended its guidance due to rising COVID cases in China. So we'll be looking for an update on that market and its home market here in the U.S. And how consumers are faring will also be key. Along with any FX impact, as analysts say, China and Japan exposure could weigh on earnings. That's its second and third largest markets. Finally, any commentary on the ongoing union effort? For context, last quarter, about 50 stores at Starbucks had voted to organize. And this quarter, it's now more than 200. The union continues to push back at Schultz as he works to reshape the company for the future. As you said, the stock's been down uh, year to date. But in the last three months, it's actually rallied up over 10 percent. So we'll see if it can hold on to those gains as well. Okay. Jeff, is this story mostly about top line growth now or is it about costs? 
I mean, I, I do think it's a little bit about both, quite honestly. And I'm in the economic slowdown camp. So being exposed to the consumer the way Starbucks is, that's what concerns me. And you might say, well, we've had a lot of earnings where companies are saying they're not seeing cracks in the consumer. But I think there's a little bit of a read through there. Even Visa, for example, they're saying no consumer weakness, but they're looking at overall spending patterns. So I think what you're seeing is higher price, lower quantity. Uh, MasterCard, very similar. They're seeing this shift from good spending all the way to groceries and gas, and you're seeing the savings rate come down. So this, this mix from discretionary to kind of staple spending, not necessarily good. P&G, the same. U.S. Steel, weakness was in the consumer space. So even though the cracks aren't totally visible yet, you know, I would want to move out of the way of a company like Starbucks where you could see consumers trading down. Uh, and I, I know it's cheaper than it's been in the past, but I don't think it's a, a particular bargain here at, at 29 times forward earnings. Okay. Kate, uh, historically, is expensive coffee a luxury <laughs> or is it the sort of thing that your mainstream consumer has to buy and therefore it's likely to get cut back up? So, John, it's such a great question. We've heard from a lot of companies in the last week, Chipotle and McDonald's in particular, talking about lower income consumers starting to pull back a bit. So we'll be interested to hear if Starbucks says the same thing. But analysts have also kind of positioned Starbucks as a company that could do well in a recession because its core demographic is actually a higher income consumer mm -hmm. that may bristle a little bit less if costs continue to go up. You know, how much is that latte worth to you is kind of a personal question. Uh, we'll see what they have to say today. But so far, you know, they've said that this could be a name that holds up, you know, fairly well, like a Chipotle or even a Sweet Green with a pretty loyal following, uh, moving into potentially, you know, a recessionary period. It's a personal question, not like the touchiest kind of personal question. People might want to answer <laughs> it, but we'll see the answer in the in the earnings <laughs> results. I'm sure. Kate, thank you. Finally, PayPal shares are 70% off their 52-week high, but up 15% in the past week on reports that activist investor Elliott Management has a stake in the company. Kate Rooney has a story on PayPal. Kate. Hey, John. Yeah, the Elliott thing is a big thing to focus on here. But number one, and the big thing I'm hearing from analysts, is that executive search. So PayPal's CFO, John Rainey, left for Walmart uh, earlier this year. I was talking to Lisa Ellis of Moffitt Nathanson. She said it's pretty concerning that there hasn't been a resolution after Rainey stepped down back in January. There might also be a COO type to step in here as Shulman's heir apparent. But there's been a huge focus on just any updates on executive searches here because there is a void with the CFO position at this point. It's sort of an interim CFO. The Elliott investment you mentioned, PayPal hasn't acknowledged that publicly. So any comment on that around the call? There's also renewed speculation about a Pinterest combination based on Elliott also having a stake in Pinterest. So if they comment on that, but there's a lot of speculation that that deal might be back in play. And then finally, the business performance. So there's a thought out there that full year guidance might still have to come down based on the international business for PayPal, we've seen things like currency headwinds, a slowdown in China, and then consumer spending has been hit. PayPal tends to skew a little bit more to uh, discretionary spending. The comps from uh, the pandemic years are pretty tough. So the bar has really been lowered for PayPal in previous quarters. The question, though, John, is the bar now low enough for PayPal? It really remains what investors I talk to call a show me story. Some investors have lost trust in PayPal's own metrics based on how many times they have actually moved the goalpost in terms of their own metrics and, and targets. Okay, Kate, good question. Jeff, what's your answer? Is the bar low enough? How exposed is PayPal to downward consumer e-commerce trends? 
Yeah, so this is sort of a lukewarm answer, I guess. But this is one of these stocks that if you own it, I think it's okay to hold it here. But I don't think it's at risk of getting away from you, you know, after the 30% or so rally that you've seen. I, I almost put a stock like this in contacts with, contacts with one of its competitors, Square, right? And I mentioned free cash flow, profitability, quality. PayPal fits the mold there a lot more than a Square does, for example. So I prefer a PayPal at, say, a sub-20 times multiple with those characteristics versus something like Square that's more reliant on future growth. I do think Elliott's involvement is a long-term positive for the stock, whether it's cost management, whether it's growth in other areas. The company's already doing things to increase user engagement. So I think the long-term story is decent. But again, I don't think the stock gets away from you here if you're patient. All right. Uh Square going by block now, by the way, folks. It wants to be seen for all three dimensions of its personality. Kate, Jeff, thank you. Up next, another name that Elliot has a stake in, Pinterest. We're going to look at why the firm is so bullish on names, on those names, and what the activist's huge stake could mean for the company's future. And before we head to break, let's get a check on the markets. Stocks losing steam. All three averages now lower. The S&P and NASDAQ have been positive at the top of the hour. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back. Pinterest reporting a decline in users from the previous year, anticipated Forex headwinds, and disappointing Q3 guidance, but shares are higher today as Elliott Management discloses a big stake. Julia Borston joins me now with that story. Julia. Well, John, on the upside, Pinterest guidance wasn't as bad as feared after warnings from Meta, Snap, and others, and its user growth beat expectations. But what's really driving up that stock is the fact that activist Elliott became the company's largest shareholder, shining a spotlight on its positioning to build a business around e-commerce and also Pinterest's advantage, the ability to use product searches to better target ads. It's less constrained by Apple's operating system changes than its peers are. Elliot saying, quote, Pinterest occupies a unique position in the advertising and shopping ecosystems, and CEO Bill Reddy is the right leader to oversee Pinterest's next phase of growth. Baird echoing Elliot's perspective, writing, quote, Pinterest Q2 results and Q3 guidance support the idea that Pinterest occupies a unique position between search and social, facing revenue headwinds not quite as severe as Meta Snap Twitter, but perhaps not quite as resilient as Google's search. Now, Elliot getting into the stock is one reason Susquehanna upgraded that company today. And of course, there is speculation that Pinterest's new CEO, Bill Reddy, and the fact that he has ties to PayPal could mean that he could potentially line up those two companies for a deal. John? All right, Julia, thanks. A lot of hope. Coming up, soft commodities lowered today, but climbing over the past year as inflation runs hot. We're going to talk to the CEO of Misfits Market, which offers sustainable groceries at a discount about changing consumer behaviors and what it means for his bottom line. That's next. Getting some headlines from Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester. Steve Leisman has the details. Steve? Yeah, John, we've been going to this all day. A lot of Fed speak. Uh, Loretta Mester uh, saying that uh, she, inflation is not going to come down quickly, and she is seeing little sign right now of progress when it comes to inflation coming down. She's saying she needs to see convincing evidence it's coming down before stopping rate hikes. She goes on to say there is a narrow path to not sparking a big increase in unemployment. 
Uh, and and uh, uh, she also sees below trend growth this year. One other thing, John, that just came out moments ago, the Dallas Fed in a piece of research saying the U.S. did not slip into recession in early 2022. Researchers looked at all of the stuff that the uh, are, that is used, all the data used to um, measure whether the U.S. is in an, uh, a recession, and they found that uh, most of the indicators are running well above it. So uh, it's just a lot of Fed speak today where basically they're trying to push back against uh, this notion that the Fed is imminently going to either cut rates or, 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 or stop hiking rates. And you can see the two-year note responding all day, both to your interview with Mary Daly, comments by uh, uh, Chicago Fed President Charles Evans, not quite as hawkish, but hey, what's not a hawk these days? Somebody who says go to three and a quarter, three and a half and stop, which obviously is not very dovish. And now Mester coming out saying she doesn't see uh, much of an increase, uh, much of a decline in inflation and, and saying that uh, it's not going to be coming down very quickly. John? So, so how does the potency look when you look at that two year? Uh, how does the potency look on the Fed speak? Is it is it doing what it normally does? It is. And what I was great you asked that question, because my first look, John, was not at the two year, but it was at the 10 year. And if you guys would call that up in the back, I didn't tell you about this. But if you could call the 10 year up, there was also some impact on the 10 year. You can see that's rising as well. And it is in that zone, John, the five and 10 year note, which are indicative of the kind of rates that business does business at. The two-year, there is some funding at that level. But as you know, most businesses fund in that five- and ten-year zone. Uh, and that's where we are seeing some potency. And I think that's the issue. But you can see it's so down, John. It was up above three. I think it was touching three and a half percent if you go way back on that chart. So the Fed has a lot of makeup to do. What it's seeing here is it's seeing um, uh, financial conditions ease. And that is really antithetical to what the Federal Reserve is trying to do here. So despite this little bump today, it still has this gathering problem of easing financial conditions. Makes sense. I'd like to claim that I knew that most businesses fund in the five to 10 year zone, but not something I think about often. So good to know. Adding to my bank of knowledge as well, always. You're, 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 your tech companies funded zero, John. They don't need that's to fund it anything, right? Yeah, at least, that's, uh, that's dur- why I don't. During, during the salad days anyway. <laughs> Steve Leisman, thank you. Speaking of inflation, one of the areas that's been hit the hardest is food with the price of staples like cereal, bread, and milk jumping almost 14% in June compared to the previous year. Meat prices higher by nearly 12%, while fruits and vegetables up 8%. But high prices have been a boon for online grocer Misfits Market, which offers an up to 40% discount to conventional supermarkets in that comparison. The company said sales and customers grew nearly 50% from Q4 to Q1 of 2022. Joining me now, Misfits Market CEO, Abhi Ramesh. Uh, Abhi Ramesh, thank you for joining me. Um, what's, what's leading to that? Is it the, the growth you've seen? Is it the discount? Is that what people are coming to you for? I think that's the big one, John. I, I think um, in this you know, inflationary environment we're in, uh, consumers are looking for cheaper options, and especially when it comes to food. You, you mentioned a lot of those those headline statistics. Um, they're staggering, right? Like you know, like staple produce items, meat, meat and seafood, dairy increasing by double digits. It's something we haven't seen in in 20, 30, 40 years. And I, and I think consumers are feeling that hit their wallet. They're feeling fuel prices go up as well. And so I think they're looking for uh, for more affordable options. And our our value prop here is exactly that. It's we 
go and, and take advantage of inefficiency in the food system and use that to deliver value in the form of dollar savings on groceries to our customers. So I, I think that's the big one that's really driving that growth for us. How are you managing to scale in this environment when gas remains so expensive, labor is so expensive? You know, I'd be lying if I, if I said it wasn't challenging. It's, it's challenging for us as well. Uh, the big thing for us is we, we have built our own food supply chain from scratch. Um, so we operate our own fulfillment centers. Um, we, you know, we, we, we manage our own middle mile. Uh, we work directly with suppliers upstream. So we don't work with distributors and a lot of the other, uh, other intermediaries in the food system. By doing so, we've been able to significantly limit um, the sort of inflationary impact on, on our end. Um, and so if, if, if traditional grocers are seeing five, six, seven points in their supply chain that, that are being impacted by inflation, we're only seeing one or two or three. And so because we own and operate and, and you know, that supply chain end to end, we've been able to limit, um, you know, severely limit the amount of inflation that we have to go pass on to our customers. Are you seeing peak inflation in your supply chain? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, it's it's tough to know whether whether it, you know this is truly the peak or not. Or not. Candidly, you know, we're not seeing a lot of signs of food inflation abating anytime soon. I think we have seen freight, uh, logistics, and fuel costs come down by about ten to twenty percent over the past month and a half or two, and that is translating translating a little bit into cheaper food prices. But the actual core prices of these food commodities. Um, have not gone down. We, mm. we still think there's uh, significant supply shortages across a lot of different food verticals. And I think that will continue to drive price pressure upward on, on food for the consumer over the next few months. So short answer is probably not. Um, yeah. I, I hope I'm wrong, but probably not. You sound like the Fed presidents. Abhi Ramesh with Misfits Market. Thank you. Thank you. Still ahead, shares of this company are up more than 8% over the past week. What's driving those material gains? What's next? Welcome back to The Exchange. Albemarle was our mystery chart. Shares up nearly 9% over the past week after Democrats announced the Inflation Reduction Act. Part of that bill aims to develop domestic supply chains and reduce dependence on China for certain materials. Pippa Stevens joins me now with details. Pippa? Well, John, there was so much attention on solar, wind, and hydrogen stocks, but battery companies also a key beneficiary of the Inflation Reduction Act. The package supports the industry in three ways. First up, $60 billion for domestic manufacturing across renewable energy, and that includes tax credits for battery production and mineral refining. The second measure is linking the EV incentives to domestic and allied mineral production. Over time, in order for the EV credits to be realized, more and more battery components need to be mined, refined or recycled by the U.S. or one of our free trade allies. Finally, there's an additional $500 million for the Defense, Defense Production Act, including for processing key minerals. As Williams-Jones portfolio manager Vance Brown put it, the lack of domestic production has become a choke point for the energy transition. There's still a lot of fine print around this funding, but he said it's a huge step in the right direction. Now, turning to who benefits, lithium names Albemarle and Livent have U.S. facilities. There are also newer players, like Lithium Americas and Piedmont Lithium, which don't yet produce. Beyond Lithium, Talon Metals is developing a nickel mine, while MP Materials operates a rare earth facility in California. John, these are complex and a lot of supply chains. Indeed. Pippa, thank you. 
And with the major indices dipping into the red, that'll do it for The Exchange. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.